Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Alexandra Bartles and Rick Snowman of Pro Audio Ears. First of all, let's talk about the best-selling genres last year. You might be surprised. MRC Data, which used to be Nielsen Music, did their annual look at what is the best-selling genre. Number one is R&B and hip-hop, total volume of 28%. Rock comes next at 19.5%. And this is different from years past, where rock would come in hmm, number three or four. Pop music comes in at number three, 12.9%. Then it's country music, Latin music, dance and electronic at 3.2%. Christian gospel, 1.9%. World music, 1.8%. Children, jazz, and classical at 1%. What I found interesting here is when you dig deep down into statistics, you find out a little bit more of the consumption patterns of people. Who do you think buys the most albums? This is albums by total volume. This includes downloads, physical albums. Well, by far and away, it's rock fans. 39.5% of the market. The next closest would be R&B and hip-hop. But it goes even farther than that because when it comes to physical albums, rock is way ahead, 44%. But if we turn that on its ear and we look at the on-demand streams, R&B and hip-hop is cleaning up at almost 31%, and on-demand video, even higher, almost 34%. So what I find interesting here is the fact that rock, who everybody says it's over, it's a format that has seen its best days, yeah, that's probably true, but you know what? It's still hanging in there, and it's hanging in there especially when it comes to streaming, but more than anything when it comes to physical. So we'll keep looking at this. R&B and hip-hop shows no sign of falling by the wayside here. It's not as strong as it's ever been, but it's still pretty strong. And we'll see how this progresses throughout the year. I don't expect these numbers to change too much, but I can't wait to look at these numbers next year. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks courses that will help you take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, if you're a guitar or bass player, you know the name Mesa Boogie. The company's been around for 51 years and many call them the original boutique amp company. That being said, now they've been bought by Gibson. And actually, I think this is a very good match. Gibson had some really good amps that they used to sell, and they don't sell any amps any longer. It's now a really well-run company with people that really care about guitars. Randy Smith, the founder of Mesa Boogie, he was the kind of mastermind behind high-gain amplifiers. There was no such thing before Mesa Boogies. He's going to become the Gibson Master Designer. This is a continuing trend that we're going to see happening in the business, where a lot of the smaller companies that are owned by a single person or a few people are going to be sold off very soon. The reason why is many of them are retiring. Many just don't want the worries of running a day-to-day business, and many just don't have a successor. 
So it's a whole lot easier to sell your company to someone that you trust. Hopefully you'll find somebody that you trust. I have a friend in England that kind of did the same thing with sound companies. He began to roll up all these small but powerful sound companies around the world. And as a result, he became a very big sound company himself and was eventually bought out. So this was good for everybody in that end of the business where they were all able to cash out at a fairly good price. And let's face it, that's kind of what we're all looking for at some point in time. After we're done with what we like to do, we want to cash out and kind of relax. So look for more of this to happen in the future. You're going to see smaller companies that are bought by larger companies. We can only hope, though, that the intrinsic trust that we have in these companies are maintained by whoever buys them. My guests this week are Alexandra Bartles and Rick Snowman of Pro Audio Ears and Alter Recording Studios, the world's first boutique recording studio dedicated to electronic dance music. Alex is a practicing audiologist with over 18 years experience who specializes in tinnitus training therapy. She also serves on the AES Education and Historical Committees and is co-chair of the Electronic Dance Music Committee. Rick is an award-winning producer and remixer who's worked with Britney Spears, Kylie Minogue, and many others. He has his PhD in audio technology from Cambridge University and is the author of the highly regarded Dance Music Manual, a standard textbook in schools around the world. The two have collaborated to create Pro Audio Ears, a unique site designed to help develop the critical listening skills and analytical listening that are essential for an engineer and producer's success. During our interview, we talked about the intricacies of hearing and ears, some facts about tinnitus that might surprise you, the importance of the kick drum in electronic music, and some tricks on how to get the best sound, and much more. I spoke with Alex and Rick via Zoom from their Alter Studios in London. I want to start with how you got started in the music business. So um, I got started in the music business not like everybody else would normally get started. I was a little bit older, actually. I, um, I, I didn't play any instruments as a child. <laughs> I, I used to go out running and uh, did uh, badminton and squash and things like that. And it was when, about 20 years ago, I actually became an audiologist. And around that time I, I I was working as an audiologist and meeting people who were producers, um, artists, and testing the hearing. I would be doing hearing protection and also looking after them because of, a lot of them would come to me for tinnitus retraining therapy. So I met people that way um, in the music industry, first of all. And then as time progressed, I'm, I'm a bit of a boring person. I don't have a TV, so I read a lot <laughs> and I love music. And I, I was intrigued by how people made the sounds because I was meeting these producers and they were telling me all these interesting stories. And I was like, oh, that's all about sound. And that's really how I got into it. I then started going to recording studios, um, met some producers and it was quite strange. And that's how I met my business partner, Rick Snowman, because I met him at a studio and I'd actually just finished reading his book, his uh, The Dance Music Manual, and hadn't put two and two together when I met him and was talking to him. And we were, we were, you know, we 
talked about music and I said that I'd just finished a book on um, EDM um, music and he said well, that was mine uh-huh. <laughs> and um, that was really how I actually got into it because from then Rick and I started working together and I got more and more involved and it was last year we got the the Alter, um, Alter Recording Studios which is a studio for um, primarily um, EDM artists. It's um, a a boutique-style studio for them to come to. And it's a training place, so it's for students to come and learn at, is is what it's about. I want to get into that in depth and also talk to Rick a little bit, but first of all, I want to know about audiology, because... I've never had anybody on the podcast that was an audiologist or even had an in-depth discussion with anybody for that matter. What's the most common problem that people come to you for? Well, one of the most common problems is where people will come and have the hearing tested, but one of the most, say, it sounds quite really boring actually, it can be earwax. Yeah. <laughs> so people do um, the strangest of things to try and clear their ears. So, yeah, earwax is quite a common problem and people expose themselves to very loud sounds and damage the hearing and that's that's one of the main things that you deal with as an audiologist. So you're basically testing their hearing, but they must understand that there's something wrong to get to that point, right? Um, no, people don't notice it. It happens very, very slowly and I would recommend that anybody over the age of 40 actually had a hearing test and if you're working in the music industry I would say go and get a hearing test even after the age of 18 because then you've got a baseline and you know what your actual audiogram readings are. Yeah, I know something about earwax I just had mine removed <laughs> recently so. I hope it was done via suction. <laughs> yes it was yeah but, but I've had it done the other way with the um, the warm water that they push in with the plunger. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not safer with the suction. <laughs> but ears are actually self-cleaning. Really? You don't need to actually do to actually do anything to them. Um, they actually self-clean. Yeah, but here's the problem for me. It's And I'm the worst with Q-tips and things like that. But the real problem is itchy ears. Right, okay, Q-tips. In your ear canal, in the first third of the ear canal, is a gland And as you use your Q-tips or stick your finger in your ear, you stimulate the gland, uh, that gland. And then what happens is you actually then produce an oil. That oil mixes with the skin that is coming out of your ear because your ear is self-cleaning and pushes that skin down. It mixes together and and creates your earwax. And all you're doing with your Q-tips is then pushing it past the hair cells that pull it out. So you're pushing it over a little bump in your ear canal, and then that wax can't come out. It then clogs up, and that's how you can cause damage. Ah, okay. See, you learn something all the time. No one's ever explained it, and I've never seen that anywhere in print either that I can remember. Of course, I don't really look for it either. Nobody really wants to read about that, and it is quite boring. (laughs) Well, I don't know. If your livelihood depends upon your hearing, you know, it's not boring at all. It's frightening. is a big concern of mine, um, a big bugbear, that people don't look after their ears and they stick things down them. Yeah. Your ear canal is only 2.5 centimetres long. You don't know how far you're going and you put anything through that eardrum, you're done. 
There's no reconstruction surgery available for that? Well, there is, but it isn't always guaranteed that it can be done. Uh, It'll work because if you damage the, the, um, if you damage the three bones after, then you've actually, you could lose that part of your hearing. And then they can, they can put plastic ones in. They have gone to that level now with, um, you know, modern technology and surgery. But no, let's just look after what we've got because you don't want to go damaging your eardrum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, the other thing is, uh, and I think every musician must have it, especially if, if you've played in loud rock bands, it's kind of inevitable that you have tinnitus. Yeah, but that isn't permanent always. Um, I, I actually qualified as a tinnitus retraining therapist. So um, tinnitus can come and go as quickly as anything. Um, it can be linked to a hearing loss. If you've got a hearing loss where a hearing aid can help you deal with the tinnitus because it puts sound back in. Tinnitus actually is, a lot of the time, it's the brain um, listening to your bodily functions. So it can hear the blood pumping, the electrodes firing and things like that. So that's what tinnitus tends to be. Wow. See, mine's raging right now. You out, Amma, because stress can cause tinnitus. Well, see, the thing about it is I don't even notice it until I notice it. So if we wouldn't have talked about it, it would have been in the background. Yeah, and the nice thing to know about tinnitus, I think people forget this. They all think, I've got tinnitus, I've got it for the rest of my life. If you take 10 people and ask them if they've got tinnitus today, you might get about eight of them might say yes. If you then ask the same 10 people in a year's time, it might be a different eight people that would say yes. So you don't always have tinnitus for the rest of your life. It comes and goes. I didn't know that. That's good to know, definitely. <laughs> Is Rick on mic as well, or do you have to change things around? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> well, good. I wasn't expecting you to be on, but I'm glad you are. I'll tell you where I want to start is with your book. <laughs> yes. I mean, the reason why is, was that your first book? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I think it was about 15 or 16 years ago. Um, I, I, I got into dance music in the 80s, 1988, 1989, and I was really interested in learning more. But obviously back then, I mean, I'm going to sound old, but it was before the internet, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it was very little you could get. So um, the producers that I was working with at the time, I was talking to them, I was making my own music, and I thought it's about time somebody actually released a book that covered the technical aspects of writing the music rather than just a quick overview of, of what it incurs. Yeah, I mean, that's very much like me with my mixing book, Mixing Engineer's Handbook, where at the time there was no no such thing. It was before the internet, so there was no information out there. And everybody said, no, you, you can't do that. You can't write about mixing because it's subjective. And they probably said the same thing to you. You know, oh, yeah, you just know how to do it. Either know or you don't. I had a lot of trouble trying to get it published at first because everyone was, oh, well, nobody really cares about electronic dance music back in, you know, 15 years ago. It's, it's not really that important. It's not that big. Uh, nobody wanted to publish it at all. And it took a lot of persuasion to get somebody to eventually publish it. I'm surprised, but in a way, I guess I'm not. (laughs) Just knowing how publishers work, I don't work with publishers any longer. I still have a few books with them, but, you know, I've been in self-publishing for quite a while now. Best thing I ever did. 
Yeah, publishers, it's, it's hard work. It's it's a long slog. <laughs> I think we've just, we just, we did the, the fourth edition and that was, it was a long slog, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Well, I'm pretty good at doing those now. After 24 books, I've gotten streamlined, let's say. But the whole thing is, it's that much harder when you work with the publisher, especially with editors involved. And well, as you know, <laughs> it, it, it can really lengthen the process. No, unnecessarily. Menaces away, all the pluses away on the decibels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the editors are always removing the minus decibels. No, leave them in. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Right. Right. It's a good one. Okay. Tell me about Alter Studios. It's a it's, it's a converted church, and we have a, the main studio, which we call High Altar, and that is where we have. Our, our, our mixing desk and um, our um, our main well our main desks for people to come along and experience what it would be like in a studio for them. So what they can do is they can actually bring their own tracks, and we can actually we can mix and master it for them, or they can do it themselves and learn. It's we wanted a nice relaxed environment for people to come to, um, and probably one of the most important things to people would be the pool table. <laughs> I think the problem was that the problem that I found personally is is that today everybody can get an entire studio in a laptop and it's both a blessing and a curse because uh, obviously back in our day you'd, you'd go and work with producers you'd learn their techniques you'd work that way and today um, kids are going out buying a laptop and thinking I can just produce music on this with a few YouTube videos uh, we wanted to create a, an environment here where they could come and learn under professionals and get a better idea of how to make music rather than a series of disjointed videos. So we've designed Alter Studios basically around EDM music. So there are many advocates of the genre that really dislike that name and would prefer, and at least it's over here, and would prefer electronic music rather than EDM. Yes. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, I've always said that EDM isn't the greatest term because EDM is often used in the UK anyway to describe um, a very aggressive form of house music. Um, but we've done a lot of work with the Audio Engineering Society. We're both chairs of the electronic dance music track there and they have kind of pushed it into us to call it EDM now. Mm -hmm. So we tend to refer to it as that. Well, I think it's a well-accepted term, unfortunately. Yeah. When you designed the studio, did you design it with the idea that you were going to have instruction and students involved? Yeah, designed it um, so we could do mixing and mastering, and we also designed it for students as well, so they could come and learn how to produce music or how to mix. I mean, one of the, of the main things, I think our most popular thing is is that if they have a track that needs mixing, the student can actually attend and watch it be mixed here uh, rather than just send it in and we send them the track back. They can actually come over and attend and sit with us if they want and see how we've done it. And in times when um, people could travel, and I'm going back because at the moment people can't travel, but we have people that have travelled over from different countries and they spend a, a week or two weeks with us and they do intense training um, on, you know, all sorts of whatever they feel they're struggling with. So it's short term then? That is, but then we, we do a lot of work with people that do um, Zoom work with us. So they'll they'll have one-to-ones over Zoom and then 
partway through that, they'll come and visit us, spend you know a week with us, and then they'll go away again and carry on doing their work at home and carry on with Zoom work. So that's how we we you know we work with a lot of people as well. I live down the street from Icon Collective, which I'm sure you guys know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've known those guys from the time they started. It's funny because it grew from nothing. I watched it grow into a real school, which is pretty neat. Yeah, it's it's nice to it's it's always very um, welcoming um, to, and and encouraging when you have people that come along and are learning new techniques. And as you see them develop and towards an end of a week when they've learned new techniques and they're going away really confident and buzzing and and about to write a new track, that's lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rick, when it comes to EDM. Electronic music. (laughs) 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 And especially the stuff that you're getting in from people that aren't experienced yet. What is the biggest problem that you hear? Uh, I'd say there's two. The bass end, which is usually the problem with most mixes because they can't hear it properly at home. Also the kick drum. It's the, the kick drum in EDM is make or break. If you get that kick drum wrong, you went to the dance floor. Get it right, you'll fill a dance floor. It's amazing how you can get away with just 16 or 32 bars of a kick drum in a club. And one of the biggest problems I notice is that a lot of people don't know how to design a great kick drum. Okay, what makes it right or wrong? What makes it bad? Uh, one of the big problems is a kind of a cardboard boxy sound. It's generally, there's too much energy around 200 to 800 hertz. There's too much boxiness becoming present there. And as soon as you put that through a club speaker, it really becomes evident. You've really got to start cutting away there. And it's surprising that most of the energy in a kick drum, we have around 120 hertz. That's where your chest resonates. That gives it that power. And also up at the high end, above 2K uh, one of the main tricks I always suggest is layer a hi-hat over the top of your kick to give it more of a transient bite. Ah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I find here constantly in evaluating mixes and working with uh, inexperienced mixers is they're always EQing down below 100 rather than above 100. And they're emphasizing everything, you know, all those frequencies that you can't hear, and they can't hear either for that matter most of the time. So then everything gets puffy and and bloated yeah it loses cohesion yeah definitely well they they tend to throw everything but the kitchen sink at them as well they 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 forget that you know we don't actually need as many as many sounds sometimes i mean there is a lot don't they (laughs) yeah i think that's one of the problems with edm as well is that people get a little bit carried away and we've had mixes in with 60 or 70 tracks all with instruments on and it's there's no need to go that heavy at the one of, one of the big things about EDM is the less instruments you use, the bigger the mix sounds. Yeah. And that's one that a lot of people miss. It's interesting. I do something for my Hitmakers Club, and it's every month, it's what makes a song a hit. And I'll take whatever is number one at the time and analyze it. And what strikes me in the last year or so is almost every one is, as you say, it's very stripped down, where you don't have a lot of mix elements at all going on. And even within the mix element where sometimes you layer a bunch to make a sound, it's not really the case either. You're getting a lot of vocals, and the vocals are making a difference from section to section, development of the song and everything, but it's not necessarily the the instrumentation. There's not much going on as there used to be. Yeah, yeah. 
it, I think it was the wall of sound, wasn't it? Phil yeah. Spector's wall of sound where he crammed everything in and made loads of instruments. And I think we're still getting carried away with that today. And today's music were very stripped back, cut back wow. more and more and more, make it as, as plain as you can really. Well, let's talk about Pro Audio Ears because I thought that was tremendous. And actually, I, I made the initial mistake. I, I went to the site, I was listening on my computer speakers and feeling very cocky about it. And then I realized quickly, wow, this, I can't really tell. So I, I had to come into my studio and listen. And, and even then, I didn't do as well as I thought I would. You know, here all these years later, it's like, gee, here's what you don't know. So tell me how that came about. Well, basically, it started um, a few years ago. Um, what The one thing I've noticed from having people uh, in the studios and training people over the past 15 years, the one thing, the one problem I'm noticing is that people don't know how to listen. And they're not learning how to listen. As I said before, the problem is that these kids are getting laptops, they've got an entire computer into it, and there's, there's, they've got the entire studio, and there's nobody there to teach them the, the basics. And I always... I always use an analogy that if I was going to run a marathon, I wouldn't go out and buy a pair of trainers, then look on YouTube and think, how do I run? And then think I can go and run a marathon. I'd obviously train for a few months if I'm going to run 25 miles. And the one thing I found is that all of these producers that I was trying to train, they didn't know how to listen. They confused hearing with listening. And I think that's one of the big problems. So um, I got together with Alex and together we, we wrote a presentation, two-hour presentation um, that we took basically around the UK. We held talks at colleges all over the UK and we even held a, a talk at the AES, I think it was the 147th convention. And the one thing we noticed there is how amazed everyone was when I was talking about how to listen to transient detail, the importance of listening for saturation, the importance of, of listening for slew rates in, in our audio equipment and the importance of, of the levels that we're running of, of minus 18 dBFS into a piece of analog gear. Nobody seemed to know this. And we even had one question, and this was from somebody in the final year after I'd, I'd held this talk, and uh, they asked why they didn't learn this in the first year because they found it so important. And it was from there we thought we really need to get this out to a bigger audience. And we figured out the best way would be to start a website and try and encourage people to start to learn how to listen properly. I mean, when I started to learn how to listen, I was listening to Pink Noise for hours on end. Um, it's not the most entertaining thing. I'm sure you've done it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not very entertaining. So we wanted to, to change that into a series of games and create a structured course. So um, when you run into the structured course, you start straight away with learning how to listen for transients. And it's a quick game of multiple choice. Can you hear the transient? And then it moves on to reverb, how to hear hall, um, room, spring, plates, reverbs, what are the difference between them? And then you, you play a game and try and notice the difference between those. Um, we're going to EQ. Uh, we're going to all sorts of how to listen between tube, and tape saturation, the differences between those. Because for me personally, I feel these are key elements to writing a great track. You've got to be able to hear these details in music to be able to mix it and get the emotion out of it as well. I like to put something like that about listening in my books, but you know, I haven't ever gotten to the detail you're talking about. But someone recently did teach me a good trick, and it was a teacher at college. And what he would do is he'd get his students and they'd get in a room and as quiet as can be, he would go around the room and, and say, 
okay, tell me one thing that you can hear in the environment. You can't repeat, you know, sounds. And, and inevitably, they could get one round and maybe into a second round and everybody would then kind of go, I-, I can't hear anything else. But it did get them into listening to details that they would take for granted normally every day, which I thought, well, that's pretty cool. That's a good start. It's not exactly what you're doing because you're doing it on another level, on a more musical level, but that is a good start. The thing is what people forget is we can all hear. And as an audiologist, I... I, you know, I, I, I know that. Um, the, the hearing, when, when we, it sounds a bit morbid this, but when we're, when we're dying, the last thing to go is your hearing. Now, if, if that is the case, then it go, that proves to us that we just all hear all the time. Our hair cells are moving, we're, we're, we're hearing sounds. But to actually listen, to, you know, to listen you know, critically, analytically to sound is very different than just hearing. And that's where people get mistaken. They go, well, I can hear okay. Well, yeah, you can hear, but you're not listening. (laughs) And I think that's why we put the test on the first page of the site (laughs) to show people that take this test and let's see how good your hearing really is, your listening skills. Yeah, it's shocking. It it is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a difficult one. It shouldn't be as difficult as it is. You know, I went into it kind of very cavalierly and I was put in my place. (laughs) (laughs) Are we we being a bit mean, do you think, with that? (laughs) And it goes beyond just that initial page then, right? There's a a whole series of um, skills that you can learn. Yeah, we have, um, there's there's actually videos as well. We, we, you know, we've we've looked at each of the different areas of, of listening. So, you know, how to listen for a transient and we've put videos in there. And, it's one of what we, we wanted to happen was we have what we call a maintenance gym. And it means that people can go to that daily and build their skills and, and ensure they, they maintain their skills. And then, I mean, we all lead busy lives. And one of the things we didn't want to happen was if people had a week off, that then they were like disheartened and, oh, I'm not at that level anymore. So then they don't do it. We wanted them to be able to go back to the maintenance gym and rebuild their skills just like you go to the gym to build your muscles up, it's exactly the same for your hearing. And we've also um, put in a social media system so people can chat to each other and it has group pages where people start groups and to start to talk about listening. And uh, if, if uh, when we have uh, colleges or universities that join, all their students can go to a specific group where they can discuss where they're up to. And there's also leaderboards. And obviously every time you play a game, you win points. And the idea is to get to the top of the leaderboard. Um, the fight at the moment is yeah. is quite intense for everybody. Yeah. The top 10, they're all trying to fight it out to get to, to number one. In your experience, how long does it take until you can say, uh, well, in, until you, you kind of complete what you're trying to show everybody? That's the first thing. And I guess the second part of that would be how long does it take until someone could hear on the level of where you believe they should? For me, um, I would say it took me about five years um, working in studios before I could begin to hear the details that, that the guys I were working with were talking about and pointing out. Um, but we have found that um, we've only been running it for a while. I mean, we've had the the, the beta testing now for about three or four months and we're receiving reports coming back of, of how their hearing has massively improved. And as I say, we work with a lot of a lot of people and we've 
got, we've encouraged them to join this and we've noticed substantial differences in what they're doing. So I would say if you stick at it for a year on training and you, this is the thing you've got to do it every day, 15 to 20 minutes every day. Uh, after about a year, I think you'll notice significant changes in what you can hear. And from then on, you can develop it further. Um, of course, getting to the, the, the expert level can take years and years of, of writing music, but I think you can get to a very good level in about 12 months. Well, Rick, you're a mastering engineer as well. And, and you know this, uh, every mastering engineer I've ever talked to always said that it took them a minimum of five years to really get to the point where they felt confident about what they were doing. And, and that's doing just that. It's working every day at their craft and, and listening and refining their listening skills in a pretty much pristine environment for the most part. Yeah, and we've got people as well that have said to us what they're doing now is they are actually integrating pro audio ears into their work day. So before they actually start work on you know the tracks that they're working on, they're doing their ten or fifteen minutes on that as a warm up to get the you know the, to get them sort of in the zone. Makes sense. I can see that. Very cool. What's next for that? Um, we're currently um, we're always designing games for it. I'm always coming up with new ideas for games to try and uh, challenge people even further. Um, I'm currently working on an extra course which will be kind of mastering grade engineer listening um, because the, the way I've designed it so far, the way we, we've mm-hmm. worked on it so far is, is to take somebody from um, pretty much a, a, a complete newcomer into hearing fairly well, or well enough to produce music at a competent level. And the next thing for Pro Audio is, is, is my mastering course, which will go, really deep into you know the, the transient energy and really listening deep into to mixes so hopefully you can get to a mastery engineer quality but of course a lot of what we do depends on the listener's environment um if you haven't got the great listening environment it makes it a little bit more difficult to hear what's going on yeah it sure does i saw a i guess it's a quote that was on your your website only 1.4 percent of producers make a career of producing music and i'm curious of the terminology there because i guess if you don't make a career out of it are you a producer well I'm, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a hot potato yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> there, are, there are yeah we we do find i mean particularly with edm there are a lot of people who call themselves producers who for me to be a a producer you, it is a career um it's something you do day in day out. i don't i don't think if you if you work at, say, a supermarket during the day and do a little bit at night, you're really a, a career producer. Um, it, it was a shocking fact we found that. Um, yeah. I think it was Digital Media Online posted that, that after a recent survey uh, that they held over a couple of years, they found out that only 1.4% are actually making careers out of this. You know, enough to, to, to obviously quit their job and make it in the industry as a full-time job. And we found from our experience that, that a lot of, of the failure is down to, as I, I keep saying, I keep reiterating this, is, is down to these people getting laptops with a complete studio in it and not learning in a structured manner. Just kind of, oh, I've got all these plugins, I've got this, I'll try and write a bit of music with it. And without structure behind that, without learning how to listen and without forming some kind of structure to your listening path, it is going to make it a lot more difficult. So I think 
in my experience anyway, I find that generally after two or three years, a lot of people who, who wanted to get into music are dropping out of it again. It's like, oh, it's, it's, I can't do it. It's, I'm not writing anything good. And for me, one of the main reasons isn't down to plugins, which I think most people do. I'll just buy a few more plugins and I'll sound better. Um, for me, I'm finding that that's down to them not knowing how to listen. Um, and one thing we typically do here if we're going to take on new staff is uh, I'm, I'm particularly challenging, as you know, from the website yeah, <laughs> and the yeah. test. Um, I will sit um, a, a prospective employee down and in front of a, a door of their choice and ask them to write a track in an hour. Ah. And I expect them to come out with something that at least sounds well. And they can only use plugins that are in that door. So I don't put any third party in there because I, I'm a strong believer that if you can't write a great track with just the plugins within your door, it's not the plugins that are the problem. It's actually the, the, the person on the chair. Yeah, I always felt that way too, that sometimes that can be a crutch. You don't have the right plugins for whatever reason, for whatever you're doing. And sure, they can sound better because some developers are better than others. But again, not an excuse, especially if you can hear. If you can hear, you can make anything work well. Exactly. One last question for both of you. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned in your ventures along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Mine was a piece of business advice actually given to me by my father. And it was, don't give up. If you believe in something strongly and you feel that you're doing the right thing, I mean, don't, you know, he said, don't be stupid. And <laughs> <laughs> um, don't just give up. Um, follow, follow your heart. And that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with with what we do so um yeah that and i yeah it's the best piece of advice i got well we're all the better for it for you following your heart <laughs> rick how about you the, the best piece of advice i've ever been given was um which, which again comes back to is, is learn how to listen listening is the ultimate skill for this if you want to make a career out of music you need to be able to listen to the details of the music and you've got to be able to work with some difficult people at times. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think also uh, don't have an ego because the one thing I've learned is that an ego gets in the way of a great record. So don't have an ego and listen very carefully to everything. You can find out more about Alex and Rick and Alter Studios at alterstudios.com. That's alter, A-L-T-A-R, studios, all one word, dot com. Also, find out more about Pro Audio Ears at ProAudioEars.com. That's ProAudioEars, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOsinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.